to 2 Kings, chapter 22, verses 1 to 13. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother was Jediah, the daughter of Adiah, and Bozka. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and followed the example of his ancestor David. He did not turn away from what from doing what was right. In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah set, sent Saphon, son of Azilah, and grandson of Meshulam, the court secretary, to the temple of the Lord. He told him, go to Hilkiah, the high priest, and have him count the money the gatekeepers have collected from the people at the Lord's temple. Entrust this money to the men assigned to supervise the restoration of the Lord's temple. Then they can use it to pay workers to repair the temple. They will need to hire carpenters, builders, and masons. Also have them buy the timber and the finished stone needed to repair the temple. But don't require the construction supervisors to keep account of the money they receive, for they are honest and trustworthy men. Hilkiah the high priest said to Saphon, the court secretary, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. Then Hilkiah gave the scroll to Saphon, and he read it. Saphon went to the king and reported, Your officials have turned over the money collected at the temple of the Lord to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Saphon also told the, the king, Hilkiah, the priest has given me a scroll. So Saphon read it to the king. When the king heard what was written in the book of the law, he tore his clothes in despair. Then he gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Akiham son of Saphon, Akbar son of Makiah, Saphon the court secretary, and Asiach the king's personal advisor, go to the temple and speak to the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah. Inquire about the words written in the scroll that has been found. For the Lord's great anger is burning against us because our ancestors have not obeyed the words in the scroll. We have not been doing everything it says we must do. Thank you, Diane. Um, Yom Kippur is very special. It's a time for us to draw nearer to the Lord, not just for ourselves, but for others as well. You know, the notion of us being intercessors, um, functioning in a priestly role um, for people, particularly the people of Israel at this time of year, is something that I believe is a steep learning curve for most of us. And so I would like to encourage you to come with expectation and, and ask the Lord to show you what he wants to teach you during the season of Yom Kippur that's coming up. Come with expectation. That's always the proper mindset for us who follow Yeshua is the expectation that as we follow him, that he will see to it that we learn from each and every time that we meet together to worship him. Amen? You know, I, I don't want to, um, also at the risk of being repetitive, I don't want to uh, give evil uh, perpetual credit, but as I was um, thinking about what's been happening the last couple of weeks, and, and this is both the blessing and the curse of social media, and seeing the YouTubes and the pictures on Facebook, um, it's, it's mind-numbing. You really can't get your arms around it. Um, you know, the last image that I saw was of a believer who was crucified. Yes, crucified. I, I, I mean, I just... Um, then several, uh, several days ago, there were images of fellow believers, actually what's left of them, their heads... Um, four or five of them on, on pikes. Um, 
fences, actually, sharp points in the fence. And then the worst of all, I'm sure everybody's been hearing about the children being beheaded for refusing to renounce Yeshua. Um, again, something that boggles the mind, that um, stirs up all kinds of feelings and thoughts in us, uh, probably anger. You know, you wish you could uh, press a button and down from heaven would come a nuclear bomb on these guys. Uh, well, you realize quickly that that's really not a particularly godly kind of a sentiment. Uh, or you can go to the other extreme of just being passive and saying that's the way things are and that's the way things are going to be and I hear about ISIS in the morning, ISIS at night, ISIS at noonday time. They're in Mexico, they're, they're in everywhere. Um, and we can do that and perhaps they are. But folks, if... If we focus on evil, then evil wins. And we as believers cannot take that posture. Absolutely cannot. Because it freezes, totally freezes God out of the picture. It implies, A, he doesn't see what's going on. B, he doesn't have a plan. And C, he is not capable of implementing his plan in the face of evil. And we cannot hold to that perspective as those who believe in Almighty God, El Elyon, God Most High. And the passage that Diane read to us, this is obviously uh, a cameo in a larger segment uh, that includes chapter 21 and chapter 23 in Second Kings, as well as a parallel passage in, in Chronicles, you look at that, and also, I think as you look at the details, frankly, it also boggles your mind. First of all, you see an eight-year-old boy mounting the throne. I mean, if you're a parent, think about your kids mounting the throne at the, the ripe old age at eight. Um, uh, our boy, our grandson is 11. I, I can't begin to imagine him <laughs> being on the throne. And uh, you, you can understand that he really wasn't ruling then. He was co-ruling with a regent, an adult who had the responsibility. Um, but as you read, as you read these passages... Uh, it is mind-numbing about the garbage, the mess, spiritual, moral, ethical, societal uh, that was going on. And let me rattle through some of the details just to give you some perspective. This king's father, Yoshiahu, by the way, means, Josiah means God saves, God will save, or God is the one who will save. Josiah's father was assassinated and that's the reason why Josiah mounted the throne at the age of eight. He was assassinated by, by his cabinet. And, and then the, popula the populace was angry at the cabinet for doing what they did and they assassinated the cabinet and then they brought... Josiah, and then they put him on the throne. And um, as we read the account, and by the way, every so often as you read the account in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, what you have is these summaries, this sort of like uh, brief statements about the king and what he did, what he didn't do. Um, Josiah's father, whose name was Ammon, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. I mean, that's kind of the general statement, as his father Manasseh had done. He walked in the ways of his father, worshipped the idols his father had worshipped, and bowed down to them. He forsook the Lord, the God of his fathers, and did not walk 
in the way of the Lord. And by the way, just to give you a clue here, as we're going through these, the thing, the, the, uh, what stirs God the most is not the fact that people miss one of the commandments. You know, they go through uh, 610, 611, 612, etc. What angers God is, is the personal. And this is something we talked about Wednesday night, that repentance means going away from God and then turning around and facing God. It is not so much leaving the evil stuff. Yes, that's involved in going towards the good. But it's first of all about connecting with God and coming, drawing closer to Him and seeking Him. And, and you see that uh, Josiah's father was not in the least interested. So he gets assassinated. Well, if you dial back, rewind the tapes to Grandpa, Grandpa Manasseh. Um, Manasseh was several orders of magnitude worse than his son, Ammon, Josiah's father. And here's what the summary statement about Manasseh. Manasseh um, became, 12, became king when he was 12. Not a real good policy. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations. And then that's in verse 2 of chapter 21. Then it comes back. Remember, whenever Scripture repeats something, it is designed to say, okay, did you get it? And let me make sure you got it. Uh, and in chapter 21, 2 Kings here, tells us that Manasseh did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So that's Grandpa Manasseh and Father Ammon. And the, but on the other hand, the summary statement about Josiah in, here in the chapter that Diane read to, to us tells us that Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. You get the connection here. It takes you all the way back to David, who was the gold standard uh, as far as kings were concerned. Not because of the sin of Bathsheba, but because of his heart. So what did Grandpa Manasseh do? Well, let me just rattle through some of the things that he did. He erected altars to Baal, to the stars. Yes, you have a, an altar to the stars. To worship the stars. And he made an Asherah pole, which is sort of like a totem pole for the goddess Asherah, who was the goddess of fertility. And all those altars, where were they positioned? They were in the temple of God. Um, and he apparently had more than one son. He sacrificed his son by fire to the god Molech. You know, the spirit of Molech is alive and well today. Manasseh practiced sorcery and divination, consulted mediums and spiritists, talking about someone who was deeply involved in the occult. Nothing new under the sun. And Manasseh shed much innocent blood in Jerusalem. But the worst statement that is made about him is that he led the people astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. Now, now here is the thing I want to park for a minute. Remember what Yeshua said about the guys who would cause innocent ones to be led astray? He said it would be better if a millstone, big heavy millstone, was hung around their neck and they were to drown than for them to lead astray the young and innocent ones. Manasseh did that. And of course, God was forced to pronounce judgment on them. He was forced because, remember, Israel was in a covenant relationship with God that was defined by the Torah. And, and what, what the Lord said, here is the agreement I'm making with you. If you walk in my ways, I will bless you. If you don't walk in my ways, I will be obligated to punish and discipline you. And if God doesn't 
discipline his people, then his, worth, his word is not worth a whole lot, is it? Let me just mount a soapbox here for a minute. Remember that the Bible promise books always talk about the good stuff, the things that God wants to do, to do for you to bless you, which he does. It never talks about the things that God wants to do to you if you choose to be stupid and rebellious and go away from him. He also has to do those things as well. So the Lord pronounced judgment on, on Judah and specifically on the king Manasseh. By the way, next Shabbat we'll see more about Manasseh and how that God can take the people who are rank evil and turn them around. That's an incredible story. We'll talk about that next Shabbat. But again, this young eight-year-old boy comes into this grim picture. Oh, and I neglected to mention part of what Manasseh did also is he had quarters for the male prostitutes in the temple, the so-called sacred prostitutes, which is what the Canaanites and, and all these guys did. That, that was part of their religion. Josiah comes into this situation. Now, you talk about a grim situation. The facts on the ground are absolutely horrid and hopeless. And I dare say that any one of us, as adults, being put in that situation would be pulling hair out. In my case and Floyd's case, don't have a whole lot here. Um, how, what do you do with this kind of situation where it seems like things are absolutely grim? Well, you can take the usual approach, one of a couple of ditches. One is to be totally passive and say, ah, you know, nothing will change. Everything will be awful. It will go from bad to worse, maybe. Or you can take the ag super aggressive, by golly, we will grab hold of this and we will change it ourselves, of course. Or you can say, God, maybe you do have a plan somewhere. Maybe somehow, in the midst of this horrid mess, you're in control. And what I want to point out is that about 300 years before, there was a prophecy about Josiah coming, being born, coming into the throne and bring about a reformation 300 years before. And let me read to you. That is found in 1 Kings chapter 13. Um, and this was during the reign of Jeroboam. Remember Jeroboam? He was the guy that caused the kingdom to split into two. The ten northern tribes were, was called Israel or Samaria. And then the southern kingdom was called Judah. And... Um, Here's the scenario. Jeroboam is standing, offering sacrifices to, uh, to a, a false god. And then a, um, a prophet pushes his way there and makes the following prediction. And he doesn't speak to Jeroboam. He speaks to the altar. He says, altar, altar. This is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places that now make sacrifices here. You say, oh, that's, oh, that's kind of grim. Yeah. What it basically states is that this boy will be born and he will bring about a radical ref reformation in the land of Judah. And by the way, there was a supernatural sign that went along with this prophecy. The same day, the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign the Lord has declared. The altar will be split apart and ashes on it will be poured out. 
This is a real bizarre scenario. The king hears that and he's freaking out and he wants to grab the prophet and his hands shrivels, pulls back and is frozen. And what happens then is the altar splits and the ashes that are on top of it spill out. Spooky, isn't it? And are you beginning to make a connection with another prophecy about another child that would be born that was also given to an apostate king? Remember Isaiah talking to Ahaz who was an apostate and saying to him, uh, ask for anything you wish, it will be given to you. And here is statement God is making to you, Ahaz, a virgin shall be with child, and you will bear a son. She will bear a son, etc., etc. And also, what I found intriguing is the prophecy that was made about Josiah became fulfilled in about three hundred years. The prophecy that was made about Yeshua and his birth was also fulfilled in about three hundred years. At least to me, it speaks about the fact that what the prophecy was conveying is the fact that God was going to roll up his sleeves and get to work in a, big, in a major way. Amen. Despite the fact that the facts on the ground are absolutely ugly. Because remember, this boy comes into the world and mounts the throne at a time when there is a spiritual cesspool sewage all over the, the country, not just in Jerusalem. You talk about something that is being utterly hopeless. Or is it? With God out of the picture, you bet it would be utterly hopeless. With God in the picture, there's a plan, and the plan is being worked out. Amen. Now you want to say, okay, now how, did, how on earth did this work? Because here you have grandpa who ruled for 50 years. 50 years was the, the worst king that ever ruled who did all kinds of abominable things who brought the nation into awful idolatry and apostasy. And then you have the father who follows the same track and gets assassinated. And, and here you have the boy. Where is... Josiah going to get the knowledge of God and what it means to follow God. Certainly was not in the genes. Certainly didn't get it from Pop or Grandpa. We don't have all the details, but what we do know from the parallel passage in Chronicles is that somehow something stirred up in him. Chronicles, Second Chronicles 34, in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father. Now, that would make him 16 years old, folks, a teenager. As a, as a teenager, he begins to point his nose towards, towards God, and he begins to seek and want to know who the God of his fathers is. In the twelfth year, which would mean he was 20 years old, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherah poles, carved idols, and cast images. Amazing, isn't it? He, he, comes, he comes into this relationship with God despite everything that he had received from, from his Grandfather and father. We don't know much about the connection with his mother or grandmother. But regardless, he grows up in a godless environment. Then as a 26-year-old, he begins a process of re repairing the temple. Something in him says, you know, I want to know God. I want to get rid of things that are opposed to God. And I want to see to it that God's house 
is strengthened, is repaired. By the way, the word that's used there for uh, repairing God's temple, chazak, it's the same word that's used in reference to the building and uh, to the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem by, by Nehemiah. If you remember way back in the distant past when we talked about Nehemiah, repairing uh, was called chazak. And uh, he wants to see that take place. Somehow, something is beginning to change, folks. The, the people who are doing the work, the carpenters, the stonemasons, etc., are doing the work faithfully. Emunah, which usually is a word associated with God, meaning not just faithfulness, but faithfulness towards God. And people are bringing money. The, the people who have been in this awful idolatry are bringing money to the temple to see to it that the temple is properly repaired after all the garbage that had been in it. And so things are clearly beginning to percolate. Again, remember how things got started. Then all of a sudden, here is the story that I think is familiar to you. And they root around in, in the temple. And uh, Hilkiah, the high priest, says, uh, I have found a book. And oh, by the way, this is the book of the law, the book of the, the Torah. Now, Hilkiah apparently has some kind of a spiritual clue. He looks at it and he has an idea of what this is about. He gives it to Shaphan, the secretary. By the way, secretary f for the king wasn't just a dude who scribbled notes. He was really part of the inner circle of, of the advisors. And um, Shaphan reads it, and he gives it to the king and says, uh, Oh, Hilkiah, the high priest, gave me this book, a book. You say, hey, wait a minute. Didn't you just read what it said? Don't you get what this was? We're not sure. But it tells you one basic thing about the place of the Torah in Israel, Israelites and Judean society in those days. Where was the Torah? It was stashed in some dusty place. Now, we had a young fellow here come a number of years ago. And, and he challenged us by saying, you know, we rant and rave about the, uh, the abortion rights and, and, and the gay movement and, and all kinds of other godlessness. But the real challenge is the fact that God's people are bi biblically illiterate. Because history shows that whenever God's people become serious about the word of God, revival, reformation and revival comes. And you see that with Israel. You see that among believers um, in the church as well. Now, neither with Hilkiah nor with Shaphan, the secretary, they read it. There doesn't seem to be much of, a, of an affect. There doesn't seem to be much of an emotion. You know, they read it. Okay, well. This is the Torah. All right. Here's a book. King, here's the book. Read it. But with Josiah, on the other hand, you get a radically different reaction. Verse 11, the king heard the words of, of the book of the Torah. He tore his robes. Obviously a sign of mourning. And... And if you were to fast forward to chapter 22, you see how God describes what took place. Now, I find that amazingly uh, incredible. Here, here's, what God, here's how God describes the, the scene. Your heart was soft or responsive, and you humbled yourself before the Lord your God. 
when you heard what I've spoken against this place and its people. This is 22:19. You tore your robes, you wept in my presence. I have heard you, declares the Lord. Now, if you go through this carefully and look in, in Hebrew, what you'll find is that the Lord is saying each of those actions, the tearing of the garment, the tearing of the robes, the weeping, the uh, emotional stuff that's taking place, the humbling, all of that takes place in the presence of God. Remember, where was Josiah at that point? He wasn't in the temple. He was in his palace, in the presence of God in his palace. What does that convey to us? Conveys to us simply the reality that God's presence in our life doesn't need to be when we worship God in this kind of a setting on Shabbat morning, on Wednesday night or Yom Kippur, but God's presence needs to be very much known and demonstrated in our life in all situations. When we drive, yeah, when we drive, Maybe God is in control even when people cut in front of us and uh, wave to us with, with one of the fingers. The presence of God is with us in our home, especially when we set apart a little cubby hole when we and God have these conversations. Hopefully more than once a year. Hopefully something that you have gotten into a habit of doing on a regular basis. The presence of God is very much there. And what the Lord is saying is, you were weeping and you tore your robes and you, you, you went through a heartache in my presence. And your heart was soft. By the way, softness of heart is typically associated with someone who is wanting to be close to God because the opposite, obviously, is hard-heartedness where you say, God, forget it. It's going to be my way, not going to be your way. The other word I wanted to focus on for just a minute is humbling. And, you know, Hebrew is so graphic, so, so vivid and descriptive. It has more than one word for humbling, this particular word has the sense of a, an, someone who is inferior coming before someone who is superior. Now think about that. He's the king. He can say, who is God? As his father and grandfather did. But he humbles himself because he recognizes the fact that God is over him. He takes very seriously the fact that God had a plan as it was read to him from the Torah. God said, I will bless you or I will discipline you. Well, that's part of God's plan. I mean, it doesn't say uh, go to this particular car dealer and get a, uh, a Nissan uh, with, with a purple car doesn't give us those kind of... But it gives us basic idea of God's plan. Follow what I'm telling you and I'll bless you. You choose to be dumb, I will have to discipline you. Josiah reads that and he takes it seriously and then he also gets the fact that he has a limited portion of understanding of what God has in mind. You know what, it, what, what it's like when you pray and, and you want... God's, you want discernment and understanding from God, and you say, Lord, I'm clueless, and God begins to give you some clues, but you realize you have this much information, and you need this much information in order to really do what you need to do. So jo Josiah says, go and inquire of the Lord. And he knew already what he had to do, and he did that. He demonstrated his sorrow 
right? and he ta- he's willing to take the next step. And that's the way it is with us, folks. God will not give us the entire package, the entire plan, unless we're willing to begin with step one. And step one is saying, God, I take you seriously. I take you seriously, and I- I'm sorry for the things that I've done. Please forgive me. Please cleanse me. Please empower me so I can then move on to step two, three, and four. So he sends five guys to see Huldah, the prophetess. And this is intriguing. I find this intriguing because she was a contemporary of the prophet Jeremiah. According to the rabbis, she was his relative. What is intriguing is as a prophet... Not someone who says, thus saith the Lord, my children, read your Bible. But as a prophet, she speaks with authority to the high priest and to the court officials for the king with expectation that they will hear and tell the king and that the king will hear. Not about Huldah, it's about God. Again, folks, when, as we learn to follow the Lord and as we immerse our mind and our thoughts in his word as we feed that into our computers so that it becomes part of our operating systems then we will be more sensitive more soft hearted to hear from God just like we see with Josiah so that whatever God needs to tell us we will be primed and prepared to hear and to receive and to do. There isn't a huge gap between what Josiah already knows and between what is said to him. And yes, God adds to the picture, but it's very consistent. Folks, God is the God of order. If he's working in your life and if he's doing something, he's not going to say, okay, forget this. We're going to take 180 degrees and, and go completely opposite to what I've been doing in your life up until now. And yes, God, since he is God, since he's the master of the universe, can opt to do that. And, and on those rare occasions say to us, okay, I want you to get on a plane and go to Sierra Leone and work with the folks who are battling Ebola. However... For most of us, it is a continuation of day-to-day faithfulness in what we've been doing to serve God on an ongoing basis. And God gives us more. So in Josiah's case, he hears what he needs to hear. First of all, from God is an attaboy kind of a message. I don't know if you've heard attaboys or girl kind of messages There are times you desperately need them. Especially when you're someone like Josiah, where it seems like you are just swimming in peanut butter or or fighting against concrete, which is what Josiah was doing. By the way, part of the picture for Josiah was the fact that it was pretty gutsy. If his father was assassinated, what do you think could have happened if people got ticked with Josiah? The rank and file said, forget it. I like Baal. I like Ashtoreth. I, I, uh, I'm stupid enough to sacrifice my son to Molech. I want to do that. You, you stop me, I'll kill you. Josiah doesn't seem to be concerned about that. He is radically committed to doing what God wants him to do. And the Lord says, I appreciate you. I value you. You're my boy. I heard you. And that's where things have to begin, folks. And we we keep coming back to this over and over and over and over again. And that is our basic grounding and understanding and being anchored in our identity as God's sons and God's daughters. Without that, we are like 
corks that are bobbing on the waves, being blown about by every wave that comes along. We have to be able to hear and understand and park on that basic reality that we are, that our primary, primary identification, primary identity is not what we do for a living, not who we are in the eyes of society, but simply the fact that we are sons and daughters of God. That has to be the bedrock foundation for us. Hulda reaffirms, speaks the word of God that reaffirms Josiah. And then she says, um, I'm going to reward you. Now, this is kind of strange reward, you have to admit. But the message is, your father, grandfather, and everybody before them forced my hand to where I have no choice but to judge your country. But God is saying, because of who you are, I'm going to hold off on that. You're not going to see that happen. You're going to experience peace and, and some prosperity. And he did for 41 years. Judah was relatively in a good place. Just a bit of a sidebar here for a minute. Obviously, with our situation, with politics that is going on, we're wanting to be able to apply that to what it means to be sons and daughters of God living in the United States. And you hear all kinds of prophetic voice saying that God is going to judge the U.S. because of godlessness and so on. And, and a couple of thoughts on that. Um, God deals with our country the way he deals with all nations. Where there is righteousness and a commitment towards integrity, there's blessing. Where there is crookedness and falsehood, God will bring about judgment. And that's a, a basic principle. And as is the case with believers in all countries, as we saw last Shabbat, it is incumbent on us not to kvetch and, and uh, trash and badmouth everything that we see. It's already ugly. We don't need to add to the ugliness, okay? We need to do what the Lord calls us to do, and that is to be a light in darkness. Not to curse the darkness, but to be a light in darkness. And to, as we are told, to pray for the governments, and as we saw in Jeremiah 29, to pray for the peace and prosperity of the country, that somehow God would do something with the nation. That's what the Word of God tells us to do, folks, and that's what we are supposed to do. Social media, to the contrary, you know, it's not really spiritually healthy for us to engage in the panic um, that, that we see people engage in. It's also good to remember that the United States is not Israel. Um, regardless of what folks say that the United States is a Christian country, the Lord did not select the United States to be his people, to, be, to bring a light to the nations. I'm sorry, folks. I, I don't find that in a good book. Um, so taking a cue from Josiah's story, when we see evil, when we see sin, when we see uh, bad uh, patterns, patterns of sinfulness, we seek God. 
unless he has given us authority, unless he's placed us in positions to where we can do something decisive to bring about change. And even then we seek God. You see also that Josiah takes ownership as much as he can. He doesn't merely say, this is what grandpa and father did. But he says, Lord, this is something that, that yes, they did, but here's where we are because of it. So, God spoke to Josiah. What did he do? Well, there was first of all the change of heart, and that always is what, where things begin. God has to grab a hold of your heart. If your heart is indifferent, he first of all has to work on you. So what Josiah did, he first of all went to the temple. Again, I'm not quite sure about the timing for this, but he demolished, he got, he basically sent a bulldozer to the temple and got rid of the altars of Baal, the Asherah poles and the altars to the stars and the, uh, the other filth that was there with the quarters for, for the uh, prostitutes. So that was in the temple and then he kind of worked his way outwardly. I think he actually worked his, his way inwardly and outwardly. I'm not quite sure about that. In any event, um, there were shrines on all the high hills, you know, like the, the foothills. There, there would have been shrines to Baal and shrines to this and shrines to that. He, he saw to it that they would be demolished. He saw to it that the shrine to Molech, where they burned their children, was decimated. And by the way, some of those shrines have been erected by King Solomon. So, did he come into a good situation or he came to a grim situation? But there was a plan, folks. There was a plan. A plan that God predicted God brought about and God raised up Josiah to be his, his agent of change and reformation. And by the way, he didn't just stop with the negative, getting rid of this, 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 and this. He moved to the positive. He gathered the people to celebrate the Passover. Again, remember, folks, the true reformation can't be just negative, getting rid of stuff, it has to be positive as well. Remember Yeshua's analogy in Matthew 12 that if, if you have a house that is full of demons and the demons are chased out, the house is clean, if there's nothing put back in it, guess what will happen? Other demons will come and take, take charge worse than before. So when we seek God for transformation and and change in our life, we want not just to get rid of the bad stuff, we want the Lord to fill us with good stuff. Amen. And this is what we see in, in his pattern, and that's our desire. Uh, on this day, which is, by the way, called Shabbat Shuvah, the Sabbath of turning, our repentance, we're committed not just to a one-time deal. Remember, folks, Repentance has to be a lifestyle where we recognize, okay, God is dealing with me and we've, okay, Lord, we've dealt with this. Thank you. And this is dealt with and uh, you've gotten rid of the schmutz. You've taken the vacuum cleaner and uh, you put, put a little um, uh, severe cleansing solution. We get rid of the uh, mold and... Um, Spider webs. By the way, it's been quite a year for that. Feels like in our house, in our yard, all you have to do is just stand still and you'd be covered with spider webs. The Lord works with us 
as we respond to him. But it's progressive. I hope you understand it's progressive. And that you're not willing to stay, to sit on your laurels, on your tush and say, okay, good, we've done with this. That's the end of it. No, God wants to progressively work in you and bring about further cleansing, further redemption, further healing. Why? So that there can be greater fullness. Because God doesn't want to fill a dirty vessel. Vessel has to be clean so he can fill it. So as we prepare for Yom Kippur, let's prepare to do a couple of things. First of all, to seek the Lord for who we are in our own stuff, our own sin. And then as we do that, let's remember that God doesn't want to stay with us only, but he wants to work his way outwardly. The work of God always works in us, and then it works through us. Let's prepare to do that. Abba Father, we thank you for this awesome, awe-inspiring example that you give us in the life of Josiah, Yoshiahu, that you indeed are able to save and redeem and deliver under all kinds of difficult situations. And we pray, Lord God, that you will give us the eyes of faith, Lord, to trust you for the fullness of what you want to do in us. Lord God, we, we want to repent of unbelief, Lord God, of looking at our life and writing you off as if you are incapable of working redemptively in us. We want to repent of that, Lord. We pray, Lord God, for each one of us that you give us eyes of faith to see your work and soft hearts, Lord God, to be in agreement and, and to be um, in sync, Lord God, with what you want to do. And Lord, be receptive then to the work of cleansing, the work of healing, the work of filling, and the further work that you have to do, not only in us, but through us. Uh, Lord God, we look forward to Niflaot, to, to your great work to take place in our midst, Lord. In the name of Yeshua, we pray. Amen.